I feel like we need to incorporate Ramble Town into uh, our show vernacular. That was hilarious. That should be a new segment. Ramble Town. The end of the episode. <laughs> Ramble Town. I start sentences that have no endings. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 1st, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's it's uh, our third podcast in seven days, so we're just um, yeah. really at peak podcasting right now. Yeah, changing the calendars to September, though. That's exciting. And from Los Angeles, this is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hello, Sarah and Neil. How are hey, you? Jeff. Are you excited, Jeff, that it's finally time for the Kentucky Derby? Yep. It's it's <laughs> September. Time for the yeah. Kentucky Derby. The first, <laughs> yeah. the first Saturday in September. I really thought all we were going to get was the zombie Kentucky Derby back in the spring. But hey, real horses, real people. Exciting. Yeah, real horses, real jockeys. It, it's a little weird, obviously, because they ran the Belmont Stakes already. I can't say I like it. I can't say I'm that excited, but I'm definitely going to watch. I'll get it. I'll get there. Um, Jeff, I'm mad at you. Uh, Oh, no. Yep. Last week on this podcast, you made fun of me for my pessimism in general, but specifically about the Minnesota Twins. They have lost six games in a row since then. They have not won a game since you were like, why are you so pessimistic? So, Um, Yeah, well, that's my fault. And uh-huh. I apologize. Yeah. Could um, you? I also apologize to the Philadelphia Flyer fans out there <laughs> who I probably hate me. Look, said you're going to win the cup. Now you're going. You're not going to beat the Islanders. I apologize to the Maverick fans who heard me talk about them pulling an upset on the Clippers. So look, you know, I'm the cooler. Yeah. Talk about who do who do you want me to uh, who do you want me to put a hex on? You know, the Chicago White Sox yeah. have had it all this year. You could hit the Indians. There's nothing stopping the White Sox or the Indians. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Problem solved. All right. On today's show, we'll talk a little bit more about the NBA strike, why the players agreed to restart the playoffs, and what we're taking away from it as we return to our not-so-normal normal. We'll also talk about college football because college football is happening to sort of, you know, messily and what we hope the conferences that are choosing to play will accomplish. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Wednesday, when the Milwaukee Bucks decided to sit out of their game against the Orlando Magic in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake, no one realized how quickly that action would snowball and turn into a historic moment of protest in sports. Nine NBA games, six WNBA games, 11 Major League Baseball games, four NHL playoff games, five Major League Soccer games, nine NFL team practices, and even the Western and Southern Tennis Open were all postponed between Wednesday and Friday. For a while, it looked like the NBA postseason was over. But on Friday, the players in the league released a joint statement announcing the formation of a social justice coalition, the push to convert NBA arenas into polling locations for the 2020 elections, and the resolution that advertising spots in the remaining playoff games would be used to promote civic engagement and voting. 
Games resumed over the weekend with the Bucks beating the, the Magic, the Lakers topping the Trailblazers, and the Clippers closing out the Mavericks in their first round series, along with the Celtics beating the Raptors in game one of their second round series. But it's hardly gone back to business as usual as we all consider what the strike accomplished and how to think about it. Jason Concepcion on The Ringer's NBA desktop warned against those already starting to judge the strike by more deliberate, pre-planned collective actions for social justice. As many have noted, the NBA players didn't like plan to strike. This was an emotional reaction. And the idea that they should then have like a point for point policy proposal like in two hours is one, a delaying tactic at worst and naive at best. Second, there are plenty of proposals out there that different activists have had. The defund movement has been going on. Also, the fact that it's on NBA players to like figure it out is wild and also ignores the really concrete things that have been done. Like in the wake of the strike, the Milwaukee Bucks were able to use their leverage to get a demand to the lieutenant governor to have the Wisconsin state legislature reconvene in order to try and deal with these issues. LeBron James has his voting rights organization. It's like there's stuff that is concrete out there that is being done. And I think it's notable also that the basic ask, if there's an ask, the basic ask is like, hey, stop killing black people, just stop doing it. And the response for many, many sides is often, okay, how do we do it? How? Which makes you kind of wonder if like the people that are asking how actually agree that it's bad. NBA players are obviously not going to be able to solve racism in America. And it is absolutely not their job to do that. But exactly because it's not something they can solve, it's it's that much harder to tell what success looks like or even what progress looks like. Jeff, how should we be thinking about where the strike falls in the larger push for racial justice that's been going on all summer? You know, it's interesting. I, I think if you if you sort of, you know, look around the country and, and see what people are saying about this, it's just I feel like it's just so easy to be cynical. It's so easy to say, what are they trying to accomplish? Oh, yeah, you took one game off. Big deal. Now you're back. You know, and it is true. Yeah, they're, they don't have, you know, they're, they're not politicians. They don't decide policy. And they're not elected officials. You know, they aren't there to do a lot of these things. But I, I think, you know, what they did was really important. And it was it was moving, to be honest. You know, I, I, I there was a moment, you know, last week, I, you know, I, I wasn't on your emergency pod, but there was a moment last week where I, I wasn't sure the NBA was coming back at all. And, and I wouldn't have blamed them because they're angry and they're hurt and they're upset and they're sick of it. You know, you look at what the efforts they had for for um, justice for Breonna Taylor and then to see this happen again um, in just such a short period of time. And I, I don't blame them. And, you know, it, it's an interesting league in that, you know, the majority is, is black and the majority of their fans are white. And to say that we're going to be a distraction and we're going to be entertainment um, while this is going on and it didn't feel right to them. And I don't blame them. And I think what they did was, you know, and you look at the ripple effect it had, you know, I think I think it was significant. You know, obviously, there's only so much they can do. And I think ultimately, that's probably and there's so much money involved in all this exterior thing. And I think that's ultimately why we're seeing them back on the court. But uh, I think also, um, 
your point, Sarah, about like the fact that it falls within the the context of what else is happening this summer is important for kind of grounding what's happening because it, it wasn't like this happened in a vacuum, despite the the bubble being, you know, an attempt to kind of keep the NBA players sequestered from, you know, for health reasons, um, uh, from from the wider scope of society. Uh it it happened as very much a part of everything that's happening right now in 2020. Uh, and it is part of, you know, this, this greater push for equality and justice that we're seeing in, in the larger scope of protest. And it also, I think, you know, the coronavirus itself uh, comes up as a backdrop to this, that may, you know, it's hard to imagine this happening outside of the very specific circumstances that the players found themselves in in the bubble in 2020 during the pandemic and everything else that's been going on because you know the pandemic has been killing African Americans at a greater rate than other groups you know unemployment is higher for African Americans uh, than, than it is for other groups during this uh, on top of the fact that they're killed by the police in much larger numbers or you know a larger proportion than other groups so it's like everything has been coming to a head in America as it pertains to race relations in the summer of 2020. And I think that this fits in with that larger narrative. Uh, And it makes sense also because basketball players are some of the most famous and powerful and influential black celebrities in the country right now. So you know, in a in a weird way, and maybe it's sad to say this, but if not them, uh, you know, kind of standing up and saying enough is enough in this particular moment after Jacob Blake, after George Floyd, after Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery and so many others, um, then who who would? Yeah, I think also. I mean, I think that's a great point, Neil. This is personal for the players in a in a way. This is personal for black people in a way that it is not for white people. And that's, I think, something that white critics of of the league right now don't understand and and maybe will never understand. But this is this is personal in a way that that we can't possibly know. The world we live in needs to change for them. Not it's not just a a political stance. It is a personal fear for their own safety stance. That, that is something that I will never be able to understand. Um, and I, I think when I, when that, when I realized that it made it all like, of course they wouldn't, of course, why would Sterling Brown want to play that, that game on Wednesday? I mean, he has been the victim of, you know, police brutality and, and of course he's not going to want to play. And I think that's I think that's really important to keep in mind for um, for black athletes because you're right. I mean, they are NBA players are are hugely prominent celebrities. They're not just athletes. This isn't just sports. I mean, sports holds that role in society, and 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 for you know we like that it holds that role in society, and this is part of that. Then we have to listen to to the feelings of the people who play these sports and, and listen and let them guide us in what they, and what they want to do, even though they shouldn't have to, but, but, but we need to let them do that. I also think, uh, you know, people tend, I think people tend to undervalue symbolic gestures. I think we live in a very transactional society where, you know, you do this, you get that. And, and I think, you know, we're underestimating, you know, how much of that's, 
how much of an impact that statement had. I mean, look, black people don't need another reminder about racial injustice and police brutality. But, you know, if you're a, a white kid growing up in Sheboygan or wherever in Wisconsin and you're wondering why the bucks aren't on tonight and you're asking your parents and, you know, then there's a conversation. I think, you know, there's awareness. There are still people in this country, amazingly, who don't think this is a problem and don't think, don't know of this as a problem. And, you know, we'll say all lives matter and all that stuff and the classic lines. And I, I think, you know, it takes a big statement like that to get conversation going and to help awareness. We've actually seen a little bit of polling about the strike. Neil, did it make a dent in public opinion one way or the other? Well, so the polling, you know, came out in the, uh, I think, a couple days afterward or maybe the very next day. And I was able to find a couple of polls. One was from Data for Progress and one was, uh, I think it was a YouGov um, poll of U.S. adults. The Data for Progress one was of voters. Uh, and so the Data for Progress one basically just asked, do you support the player strike? Uh, and they found that 48% of all voters support and only 38% oppose, which is actually pretty similar, almost identical, I think, to the overall um, support for Black Lives Matter versus oppose in other polling that we've seen. Most notably, Civics um, Analytics does like a tracker of that. Uh, and obviously, there was a huge partisan breakdown where 74% of Democrats supported, whereas 65% of Republicans opposed. But you still had that, you know, uh, overall net positive of about 10 percentage points. Uh, and the YouGov poll was actually even more sort of um, uh, supportive in, in that regard. They found that about 57 percent of U.S. adults uh, either somewhat or strongly supported what the Bucks did. So they specifically asked about um, their decision not to play the game against the Magic. Uh, and only 28% uh, either somewhat or strongly opposed. So th those are, uh, you know clear indicators that I think the public perception around this is still positive. The public at large supports the actions the players took. In terms of whether it made a dent or moved the needle uh, overall in terms of, uh, you know, perception toward racial justice or even support for Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's a little bit tougher to suss out. Uh, like if you look at the civics tracker over time, you know, uh, the support for Black Lives Matter spiked uh, sometime in early June, uh, where 52 percent supported, 29 percent opposed. This is of registered voters in the U.S. Those numbers have narrowed recently. So right now, 49 percent support and 38 percent opposed. Uh, and the number of opposed has gone uh, up by one percentage point in the last couple of weeks. But we just don't have enough data to really know whether the NBA protests made, uh, you know, some kind of impact. And I don't know that I would necessarily expect them to specifically make an impact because, you know, we uh, are, are, are in sports, you know, this is all top of mind to us because we, you know, eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. But you have to remember that only 10% of Americans are major basketball fans and that includes college and pro so it's probably the number of pro is is lower than 10 percent uh so you know i think that as as big of a deal as it was and especially in terms of how history will view it and the history of sports will view it it 
has its most power as part of this overall tapestry of, uh, you know, justice movements in, you know, overall through the summer. The, you know, the, the WNBA has put social justice front and center, really the entirety of, of the league, but particularly the season. And so I don't think anyone was surprised that they took part in the strike. I mean, they've been making, um, you know, say her name has been a huge part of their season. They've been really focused on Brianna Taylor. So that makes sense. Some of the sports that did have walkouts did surprise me. Jeff, what did you think it, it means that specifically baseball and hockey took part in the strike? Well, with baseball, it was interesting because, you know, with the Brewers, you had a team also, you know, sort of, in a similar spot to the Bucks, where you know where it was in their backyard, this particular incident. Um, and I, I thought actually the most interesting thing was the the backlash that the NHL received for for not postponing its games that first night. I mean, at one point, I think boycott the NHL was was trending, um, which is remarkable, you know, because. It just who would have thought, you know, that this is, you know, it became solidarity in the NBA world to solidarity in, in the sports world very, very quickly, um, which was just remarkable to see. You know, this is a league where the majority of the league isn't even American. Um, and we're talking right. about this uniquely American problem with everything that's going on here. Um, well, not uniquely, but in many ways it is. But still, I mean, it, it, I think it shows what the NBA has become and what a sort of how they filled a, a leadership void amongst athletes and amongst pop culture. I mean, just going back to thinking about how the NBA was the, the first to, to cancel games NBA. And in, in many, in many ways you could argue that LeBron James is the most powerful figure in sports right now. And that's why it's so interesting. All of these, uh, the conversation that um, has come out around, Oh, or the NBA's TV ratings declining because of, you know, the social justice messaging and all of this, you know, I tend to think that that is pretty overblown and it doesn't take into account afternoon games and this, that, and the other. Uh, but even if the NBA is having problems in terms of like turning off fans, the NBA is, I think the most culturally relevant sports league, I mean, I guess the NFL uh, it, when it's at its peak is, is the thing that is most talked about, uh, I suppose. But in terms of the cultural pull of specific players, I don't know that you can top NBA stars, LeBron uh, obviously being number one in that. And so I think that that really counts for something that, that really, you know, shows, why the other leagues follow the NBA's lead and why there was so much pressure from people on social media for the NHL to, to postpone games also is just that the NBA players are, are cultural icons, you know, in a way that we, 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 in an earlier era, we talked about why baseball couldn't get people to that level. They can't get Mike Trout. They can't even get Bryce Harper or anybody like that. And they've lamented that uh, for years, uh, whereas for basketball, I think they're still, you know, it's it's kind of a, a better problem to have than the alternative, even if your TV ratings are going down or people are sort of tuning out, that you still have these guys leading the league that are just icons and celebrities on another level than you see from most other sports. Do you guys, do you think we'll see another collective action like this again 
either this year or in in the future? I mean, is this the kind of thing we we should expect from athletes when you know terrible things happen in in real life that they'll they'll react with the power that they have to stop games? While I do think the the sort of the days of Republicans buy sneakers also is over or stick to sports. I think that's over. We put that to bed. Um, and I don't think, I think that will have change going forward in terms of, um, when athletes feel they can speak out and when they should speak out. Um, but I do think this actual environment is, is, you know, really pouring gasoline on on a lot of these issues. Um, so hopefully, God, hopefully, we don't have this environment going forward. Yeah. But for the next couple of months, you know, let's see what happens. I mean, it, God forbid there's another, you know, incident, another shooting, then I, I think you certainly will see it again. And, and and you might see it even stronger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My my response to that question is hopefully we don't see another collective action because of what it will have meant has happened yeah. uh, to kind of spark that. Uh, but at the same time, I do wonder, like, where do you go from here, especially if you're the NBA and God forbid something else does happen? I mean, that seems like that's the end of the season right then and there. Right. I mean, if if things have escalated to threatening that uh, and, and needing to be talked down, uh, you know, or somehow bargaining for additional support from owners and from the league itself, just to be able to come back onto the court, it does sort of raise the question of, if there is another incident, especially in the bubble in this particular playoff, it feels to me like that's that's it. You know, that's the end of the season. And maybe it should be. Yeah. You know, it's not for me to say whether it is or not, but it does seem like the level of escalation. Uh, there's nowhere to go from here except cancel from from this point forward. But I don't know if you guys agree on that. I do. I mean, I think I think if something else were to happen, I think the players, I don't think the players would have the heart to play really. Um, And I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame them at all. You know, I think they already knew their power, but this was like a real test case for how much power, especially the players in the NBA. I don't know what's going to happen in the NFL. And I think we'll find out in a week and a half. And that could be on another level, I think. Uh, There are two and a half times more major football fans in the country than there are basketball fans. So, And and we've talked in the past about how that's the sport that's most split 50-50 down the middle in terms of partisanship of following and that is really, I think, another uh, perfect storm uh, in terms of political you know, strife if, if they were to follow suit. So I think we'll find out. But it, going forward, this does seem like almost like unlocking a new, uh, a new level of player activism and influence with the ownership. Because I think the ownership, uh, I think there was a Sports Illustrated story about this. I forget who wrote it, but something about um, how the NBA has been content to kind of frame itself as this league, this progressive league in favor of social justice. Yeah, I'm not sure where. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to to find out at some point where the owners, like where they stand on. Was it a fight to get the concession of using arenas for polling places. I will love to read more about this at some point after, after all this is over and how that all went down. Because I think, I think you're right, Neil, like this, 
you can't just hide behind slogans here. We're to the point now where action is paramount and, and it won't be enough to say, yes, this is, I agree with this. It's, it's going to be, everyone's going to have to show, show their actions instead of just, instead of just agree with a slogan. Okay. I think we can end this discussion here for now. This never, this discussion never really ends. We'll keep talking about it as, as the season goes on and as the summer goes on. But for now, let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about college football. Don't look now, but college football has actually been played in the middle of a pandemic. On Saturday night in the first game of what is sure to be an extremely weird season, Central Arkansas rallied to beat Austin P 24 to 17. Wasn't the first play, the opening kickoff, like a touchdown in that game? I think I saw that. <laughs> yeah, so that's fun. Just a weird way to start a weird yeah. non-season. Yeah, absolutely. More games are scheduled for this weekend before what's left of the Power Five starts their season next week. Despite the strange patchwork of this college football season, the Associated Press came out with its preseason top 25 poll, just like normal. Nine of the teams on the list aren't playing this fall, but but it, but it is a list. <laughs> Marcus Spears talked a little bit on SportsCenter about the AP poll and the shift in thinking that maybe needs to start happening now that college football is set to begin. I hope some at some point they do come out with a new poll with everybody that's going to participate. Mm. But it begs another question, right? When we get to the point of a national championship, is it really going to have the same weight that all the national championships we've watched before have because you have two conferences not competing? I don't think anybody in their right mind would say that this is obviously this is not obviously a conventional season, but also it diminishes a little bit about what we see possibly as the national championship this year. Okay, so here we are with college football happening, mostly, maybe. I have to admit that the AP poll made me laugh. Like I, I always think the poll, especially the preseason poll is based on nothing. And this year it's like, Oh yeah, no, for real. Ohio state number two, Penn state number seven. Sure. Why not? We all have no way to disprove that this, this fall. So that's fun. Uh, the national championship issue is one I've been trying to figure out for a while. Neil, what should be done about a football title? Uh, great question. Uh, you know, what there, what should be done? I don't know. I, I really honestly don't know how to handle this because you do have some power five schools that are playing like nothing's happening. Uh, the majority of, of them, yeah. you have, uh, some that I think yesterday it was revealed the, the law, the details of the lawsuit between the like Nebraska and and Big Ten parents and the Big Ten administrators, but uh, I don't think anything has been solved there yet. Uh, and so they had been talking about a Thanksgiving start. I don't know how that works. And then you have uh, the Pac-12 just, I guess, putting it off to the spring. And I don't know how that works. So <laughs> will there be three different champions? Will like there's nothing because of the the the, the committee change. Uh, a few years ago when they started the college football playoff. Uh, it's a human decision now by a group of people uh, instead of being based on a convoluted formula that in credit to the convoluted formula, at least you had to play games to be included in the convoluted formula. I mean, college football has a long tradition. And in a lot of ways, this is taking us back to that tradition of the top teams not playing each other 
really, uh, and just playing regional games, maybe you'd get the stray powerhouse game between Notre Dame and Miami or something like that. Mm -hmm. But mostly they stayed in their little regional clusters and you would have no idea how to judge any team against each other, any of the top teams. And then at the end of the season, a bunch of people voted uh, on who was best based on the eye test and what God knows whatever other criteria they used. And then whoever was number one in one of the polls could say they were the national champion and there could be two champions if the polls disagreed. And that's kind of, I think, where we're going to be back at this season if there is a season to speak of it's going to be hearkening back to this like weird like we don't know anything so let's just guess at who the best teams are based on nothing and there's your champion (laughs) so i don't know what do you guys think should be done about it yeah i actually think that old system which was you know silly for so long you know people voting for nebraska over (laughs) michigan uh despite (laughs) Nebraska being a gimmicky team that had played no one. Um, just hypothetically. I, yeah, that that yeah, I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, drawing random examples yeah, from yeah. thin air, you know. Um, it actually makes the most sense. Let, let's do that. But let, we don't need a playoff. Let's just decide on the eye test. This is the one year it actually kind of makes sense, especially if the Big Ten goes through with this and, and, and plays this belated season while everyone else is finishing their season which makes no sense if if we're going to try to evaluate these teams all on the same page but and theoretically the the pac-12 won't start until january or whenever so like we could have games going through like what march so should we have the the final poll the champion declared and like right before march madness starts like i i just maybe this season just doesn't have a national champion. I know that that's hard for people to wrap their heads around, but how would we like, nothing really makes sense. I mean, not in our timeline anyway. I think there will be an ESPN champion, which will be the team that however they decide who's in the playoff by early December. And then those four teams play each other in January. Whoever wins that will be guaranteed, I think, by law to have uh, by, by law. law. Like the, <laughs> yeah, right. But like it's in the Constitution, no, yeah. actually. It, it was an amendment recently That's they right. added. But no, by like by the contractual obligations that were negotiated by ESPN in the college football playoff, I believe the coaches poll has to list the person that w- the team that wins that as the champion. But I think the AP poll can do whatever it wants, or maybe I have it backwards, but you get the idea that like one of the polls could say like, Hey, we're, we're not going to crown a champion until we've seen the completion of the weird big 10 mid mini season or whatever it is. And the PAC 12. And so you could have like a delayed split national champ, like say Oregon plays really well and runs the table in the PAC 12 between January and March or whatever. You know, maybe they'll like release an amended poll or maybe they'll hold off on the poll until then. And so you'll have like some team that won the championship back in January. And then, uh, you know, whoever wins the Pac-12 and goes undefeated there will will be the other split champion. And then we'll have an endless debate forever among anyone who cares who like might not be anyone. But this is college football. A lot of people do care uh, about really petty, pointless, unprovable arguments. That's kind of the (laughs) cornerstone of the sport uh, about who would have won between the 
January college football playoff champion and the March poll champion. I do think that's that I could see that easily happen. Yeah, I do think it's really funny that there's there's whole there's this whole brouhaha about the Big Ten, and and the Pac-12. The to their credit, they've really just been like, this is what we're doing. And no one's really, really complained about it. But also... Well, the Big Ten wishes that they could do that, right? I mean, it's really like some rabble rousers like the parents in Nebraska that are like forcing them to not do yeah, that, right? It's mainly Nebraska. <laughs> no, for sure. But my point my point was that no one's like, what about the Pac-12 schools that will influence the playoff? Like, no one's really saying that because... It's yeah, no one out here. Sorry, Pac-12. <laughs> But you know what is interesting? It is interesting to me, and this actually does make me a little irritated to go on a little rant. You know, I was listening to the Feinbaum show where they have a lot of SEC fans call in, and the general consensus is kind of laughing at the Big Ten. Like, ha-ha, we're playing, you're not, because you cave to the, the pressures. And I'm like, all they were doing was listening to doctors, you know? And all of a sudden, they, and by the way, just for the record, all of this was avoidable. This thing started in March. We were we were three months removed from the, the national championship, and now here we are, six months later, um, and it's still going on. Slash, just as bad. This was very avoidable, and to fault the Big Ten like like they're cowardly or something like that is ridiculous. And and frankly, you know, as a fan of a big 10 for you i, I want to see my team play I, i'm not happy about this i'm not happy about any of this i don't think any big 10 fan is but at the same time i understand why they made that decision and i don't think they should cave to the pressure because some other conferences are, are being reckless and you know i wish them the best i will watch their games i i hope they don't have crazy outbreaks left and right like the one we saw at auburn but but I don't think I think they should stand by their guns, to be honest. See, as a as a fan of a school that is playing, I'm I'm angry. I'm angry right now. I'm angry that my alma mater doesn't care more about about its students when we when there's so much we don't know. And there is there are indicators that there could be long term, long term consequences of having this disease. I, I'm angry. I'm angry that <sighs> Iowa State is has an outbreak right now in their second week back at, at class. They're one of the the hotspots in the country, according to the Times, the New York Times tracker map. There are more than 300 cases at school of students right now, and they're the county that that Iowa State is in has a huge outbreak. They are planning to let in 25,000 fans in their first game back. I, I think that. Wait, I'm sorry, 25,000? 25, not 2,500. Not that that would have been much better, but right. still 25,000? 25, 25,000 fans. How much distancing can you do? What's the capacity of that stadium? Like 60,000? That's not that much distancing. No, it's not. And yeah, and also, like, what that'll look like a Tuesday night Sunbelt game. I mean,. No, they have fewer fans at those games. Who am I kidding? <laughs> but I'm saying, like, having a stadium of empty seats does not, you know, fire up the home team. Well, that's not the point, though, right? The point is money. The point is is recouping yeah, the revenue because we have allowed our college sports to become professional sports, and they, the revenue they bring in, keeps other 
teams afloat. We, so, so that is so important that we're going to, to risk people's lives. And like, I'm so angry every time I read a story about any of this. And then I make the mistake of looking at the comments because I am stupid. Um, and, and it's all people saying, well, if you're worried, then you can just stay home, but I'm going, that is not the point. The point yeah. is not yeah. my personal safety. Although, Hello, I am worried about my personal safety. I don't want to get this. I don't understand why so many people are so cavalier about it. But besides that, we have a responsibility to to the athletes representing our school. This is like one more case where we just see this as as a product, as entertainment and not people, where there are real things that can happen at real problems that could have affect these kids for years to come so that we have something to distract us on Saturday afternoons football of all the sports football is the worst idea we have been talking about this since March and like the thing that I love about the NBA is that they really thought through how to make this work and they they did put a product out there and that I love that we just didn't care that football is is has much more close contact and we can't keep kids in a bubble. This like this nonsense about, oh, the kids are safer at school. That is said by people who have not spent any time on a college campus for real yeah, and have not, not spent true. time with college students. You know, it was interesting what, what Saban said. Um, he said that players aren't going to catch the virus on the football field. They're going to catch it on campus. And that the argument should be, maybe we shouldn't be having school. And, you know, He's kind of right on that. I do actually think that is true. I think that is the real danger is just what you highlighted, Sarah, is that college campuses is a worst possible environment <laughs> for spreading this virus. And I and I do think, um, you know, that's why college college athletes, college sports are in a unique danger compared to these bubbles. They shouldn't even be compared to the the money and the and uh, the uh, infrastructure that goes into building what happened in Orlando or what the NHL did in, in Canada, you know, it's not even close. It's, it's a, way more risk. Yeah. And in a weird way, if, I mean, it would totally undermine the argument that college players are amateurs and just student athletes that happen to be really good <laughs> at sports, but, uh, but go to the school for the academics. Of course they do. Uh, it would totally undermine that argument, but it would actually, if you didn't have students on campus, but you did have players and they just sort of stayed among themselves and they were tested constantly uh, and their only contact with people from the outside were when they played, which is at least outdoors. I think we've learned a lot from baseball uh, in particular that outdoor spread, which is something that's, you know, the science had been saying for a while also that outdoor spread is rare. It's a, it's it's much rarer than indoor spread uh, that like you could actually kind of create bubbles on each campus if, if it were just the players where they would be safer. Uh, but, you know, having them come on and potentially interact with other students who are, you know, uh, going to parties and, and just spreading the virus like wildfire is a bad idea. And, and I don't think they want to have the players come on a closed campus because the optics of, hey, aren't they students? Shouldn't they not be on campus if if you're closing campus to students? That seems hypocritical when it's like it's all kind of a game we're yeah, playing with semantics because we all know that they're not, you know, uh, just there for the for to to be students and and that the school is making a massive amount of money off of them and they should be paid. And that's that's the irony of um of this whole thing with the MAC and the Big Ten and the Mountain West and the Pac-12 is that those often are the schools 
where they they aren't have they don't have students on campus. Those players, ironically, would probably be much safer than um, the SEC and ACC schools where campuses are open. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think it, we at least have to be honest that this is all about money. Um, you know, the other sports, all of father fall sports have all been canceled um, or postponed, um, and football is just make so much money that we're going to keep going on it. And I think, I think that I at least want people, I, I at least want all the people in all the comment sections across the world, across America to at least be honest about that. Like this is a, a thing where you're willing to risk student lives for the money for your school and for your enjoyment. Um, and that, that just sucks. I, you know, we're, we want to, we want things to be normal. I want things to be normal too. But we can't just pretend that they are and think that that's yeah. a substitute for it. But that, but that is what's happening. I mean, and I think you're right. I think it is about money, but it's also, you know, college football is a way of life, in, um, especially in the South. And I think people aren't willing to accept a reality that's different from what they're used to every September. Okay. I think we can end this here for now. There will be more football to talk about as the seasons get going. And we'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents. The hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Sure. So, Sarah, you actually a few weeks ago assigned me a rabbit I, hole. I did. See, we this talked, is what I do. <laughs> yeah. We talked about uh, the phenomenon of great players ending up in weird and or little remembered uniforms after the trade deadline. And, of course, the trade deadline in 2020 was yesterday, which was fun. Uh, you know, after a lot of speculation that it would be maybe a dud for a lot of different reasons. It was surprisingly eventful. I think the Padres had 26 trades by themselves. Uh, Jeff's Padres, I should say. Uh, they picked <laughs> up Mike Clevenger. The Marlins bought and sold. Uh, they traded Jonathan VR, but then they picked up Starling Marte. The Blue Jays were pretty active. Uh, we saw the Mets pick up Robinson Chirinos, and they reacquired Todd Frazier because, of course, they, they reacquired it. Todd He's Frazier. Back. Do you think well, the Mets just looked around and were like, wait, Todd Frazier's not on our team anymore? What? How did we have work? to fix this. <laughs> where's Todd? Where is Todd? Has anybody <laughs> seen Todd? Uh, and then Oakland, uh, they picked up Tommy LaStella and left-handed pitcher Mike Miner. These are all decent players. I don't know that you'd call them great. And I also don't know if it's weird to see like Mike Miner in an A's uniform. I mean, you could probably have told me that he played for them before and I just believe it. Uh, wait, did but he? Are we sure he didn't? I checked it that. yesterday and okay. he didn't, uh, but I had to check. And that that's uh, kind of the idea with a lot of these guys. It's like, oh, they're pretty good. But they're not Ricky Henderson, who was our canonical example a few weeks ago. So we knew that that had to be one of the most random trade deadline stops for a great player. But this being hot takedown, this being rabbit holes, we needed more. <laughs> so I looked for the best players who were picked up at or around the trade deadline uh, by a team and they only ever played for that team in that short, you know, rest of season stint. And I ranked them by their total war with teams other than that, which should give us a nice uh, list of great players in really weird situations. And lo and behold, number one on the list was Henderson with the Angels. As we said, <laughs> he had 109 war with teams other than Anaheim. He's uh, that makes him number one on the list. 
He was also traded the 1993 deadline to the Blue Jays, which is only a little bit less weird because they ended up actually winning the World Series. But he had 108.4 war outside of that stint with Toronto. Uh, you had Randy Johnson on the Houston Astros. He was traded there by Seattle at the 98 deadline. And he was ridiculously good after this trade. He went 10-1 and with a 1.28 ERA and had three and a half war in Houston just in like a couple months. Yeah. Uh he had a 101.2 for everyone else because he was really good at throwing baseballs, as you might have heard. Similarly, you had Tom Seaver, who was traded to the Boston Red Sox for Steve Psycho Lyons at the 1986 deadline. Lyons is better known as a commentator. Seaver is better known as a Met, a Red, or even a Chicago White Sox than uh, for his tour in Boston. He had 101.1 war for all other teams. Uh, okay, let's shift gears from these pitchers and talk about some great power hitters. So, uh, who here remembers Ken Griffey Jr. as a member of the Chicago White Sox? He was Zero. there. Zero <laughs> memory of that. That no. didn't happen. Yeah, he was there for a grand total of 41 games, which is actually almost a full 2020 season's worth of games. Uh, in 2008, he was traded there by the Reds, and he was basically past his prime uh, and didn't really do much for them, but he did have 80.5 career war outside of Chicago. Uh, here's another one for you. Jim Tomei as an L.A. Dodger. Nope. That one was really weird because it was a waiver trade back when they had that. So they had a normal trade deadline, which was like yesterday. You know, you trade uh, with other teams. And uh, after 4 p.m., you can't really do that anymore. But then there was a waiver trade period after that in which you could put a player on irrevocable waivers. And then whoever claimed them, you could work out a trade with that team. I think you had like 24 hours to work out a trade. Uh, and and you could trade players even after the deadline that way. And that's what happened with uh, Jim Tomei in 2009. And so, of course, he did literally nothing with the Dodgers. He played just 22 games for them, including the playoffs, and he had five hits with no home runs, which was not a performance to remember for a guy with 71 war outside of that. And then it happened to Tomei again just three years later. In 2012, he was traded at the deadline to the Baltimore Orioles, which is another team that... I think no one would remember him with. And once again, he really didn't do much. He played 32 total games with the O's and then retired after the playoffs were over. I'm just going to read off the remaining names in the list and tell me if you remember any of these. So you got Yvonne Rodriguez on the 2008 Yankees. Uh, no. nope. <laughs> really? I remember that one just a little. I'm not sure why. Uh, what about Carlos Beltran? Not on the 2011 Giants, which Mets fans would remember for the trade that yielded Zach Wheeler, but instead on the 2016 Texas Rangers, he was traded there at the deadline. Zach Granke was traded to the Angels at the 2012 oh. deadline. I did not remember that happened at all. I vaguely remember that. But yeah, what and what happened with the Angels then? They didn't really do much, right? I'm not even sure they made the playoffs uh, yeah. at that point, but certainly they didn't make uh, a lot of noise. And that's yeah. what's weird about these. A lot of these cases are of like teams that are on the cusp of the playoffs, like fringe contenders, trading for these like once great stars that are usually pretty old. Not in not in Granky's case, he was still like had some prime years in front of him. Uh, but in the case of like you know, the Orioles picking up uh, Jim Tomei for the playoff push or whatever. It's like, that's random. And of course, no one remembers it because they didn't do anything after that. Uh, Manny Ramirez, everyone remembers the 2008 deadline in which he got traded to the Dodgers. But how about the 2010 deadline when he got traded to the Chicago White Sox? <laughs> 
technically this wasn't even a trade, so maybe I shouldn't have included that, but it was part of the waiver mechanism where he was selected off waivers by the White Sox. The Dodgers had 24 hours to work out a deal or they would let him walk for nothing. And they didn't work out a deal and he just went to Chicago <laughs> and that was that. And he, you know, uh, I think he played for the Rays after that. Like there, Manny's career is something that we should do a deep dive on at some point <laughs> because it was so interesting. Uh, how about Tim Raines as a member of the 2001 Baltimore Orioles? This is one that I couldn't even figure out how it was actually legal. So this trade, like we're talking about the deadline, Obviously, today is uh, September 1st. This year's deadline was August 31st. Usually, it's on July 31st. But this Tim Raines trade happened on October 3rd, 2001. Uh, and so I don't know uh, whether it was a waiver trade, how it was actually legal. But basically, it happened. The season had been pushed back a little bit by 9-11 oh, that right. year. And so he was able to play after being traded to the Orioles on October 3rd, 2001. He played exactly one week with the Orioles and shared the outfield with his son, Tim Raines Jr. for a week. And then that was the end of his, <laughs> his stint as a Baltimore Oriole. Were they just like, you know what? We don't need rules right now. Go play with your kid. Like they just were play just with like, your son. Nah. <laughs> well, what's funny is the I found a Baltimore Sun story talking about it. And they the the team laughably, I think, insisted, no, this was this was a trade made for baseball reasons. This wasn't just so that he could say he played with his son. I was like, oh, come on. Baseball but, reasons. So that was the, because the season was well, the season was delayed because of 9-11. So it must have been. That's why it was that late. Well, that's still very yeah. late, even if it wasn't delayed. It's very late for a trade, which I wonder if it was in that if they extended the waiver period. Uh, if ever again, we would see an October 3rd uh, trade. But also, uh, but also <laughs> ba for baseball reasons, the Orioles finished 63 and 98 <laughs> in 2001. What yeah, baseball it's, reasons? It's so ridiculous. I mean, did they need warm bodies to like to stand <laughs> yeah. in the outfield yeah, that year that, uh, yeah. for the last week? Else they would have to forfeit their games because they didn't have of players uh and then who could forget jim edmonds as a member of the cincinnati reds in 2010 literally no one remembers this uh and he retired right after that uh, i should also say that this year starling Marte is the closest of any active player to join this list but uh he would have to produce 35 more war outside of whatever he does for the marlins this year to actually get into this group uh someday so maybe he's got a shot at it but i don't i just don't know if we'll be talking about any of this year's trade targets as um weird stopover type players in the same in the same way that we all remember tim Raines on the 2001 <laughs> orioles I want neil neil i had so little memory of any of those i mean you really could have said anything you could have said <laughs> hey, you remember when chipper jones was traded to the brewers in 2010 and i would have been like no yeah maybe yeah that happened <laughs> that totally happened all right well that was a very fun walk down memory lane and i'm very confused now about many players and why they were ever winning and on this particular memory lane we have no memories no right so. yes <laughs> we're getting off of that memory lane immediately okay that will do it for this week's show thank you so much for joining us we'll be back in your feed next tuesday if you like what you've heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. it helps new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>